good morning, everybody, and happy Easter. So glad, yeah. Um, I'm Chris. I'm one of the ministers here at this church. I'm so glad to be with you, visitors, kids in the building, regulars alike, uh, and glad that you could join us on the most important day in the church calendar, uh, the one that specifies the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen? So, yeah. <clears throat> I just want to take uh, just 25, 30 minutes, which uh, it's about half the normal length that I go, by the way, and just share with you this story, but I want you to see for it yourself. And so if you have your Bibles, your Bibles on your devices, turn with me to Luke chapter 24. We're gonna, I'm just going to read the first 12 verses. If you don't have a Bible with you, no problem. Uh, it will be on the screen for you to follow along with me. I'm reading from the NIV this morning. And story that we're going to pick up, story by which all other stories are surrounding, is this one. Little context as you're turning there, Jesus died on a, a, you know, a couple days earlier, and his loved ones are on the way to the tomb to grieve and to mourn um, and to prep his body in its burial. And so this is the story that we're about to read. I'm just going to read all 12 verses for us, and then we'll talk about it, we'll worship some more, and we'll call it a day. And this is Luke speaking. He says in verse 1, He says, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all of these things to the 11 disciples and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James and the others with them who told this to the disciples, but they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, he got up and he ran. He ran to the tomb and bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. This is God's word. I can't help just reading that first verse and trying to picture and wonder what was going through the minds of those women as they were on their way to the tomb. This is Mary Magdalene, one of the most loyal disciples Jesus had, staunch supporter with him in the action. The other Mary, this is, this is Jesus' own mother, gives birth to Jesus, nurses him, raises him up as a kid, sends him to school, makes him little bag lunches on his way to Bet Midrash, you know, as he's a teenager, deals with all that that is, and as he grows up into his 20s and 30s and enters into his ministry, she was there the whole time, a, a mother's bond, and she's on her way to the tomb. As the saying goes, you, you're not supposed to die before your kid, or your, your, your kids aren't supposed to die before you. You're not supposed to outlive your kids, and Mary is on her way to the tomb of her, 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 her firstborn son. 
Now, I don't know what was going through their minds at the time, but we know what they were doing. They were bringing spices, right? This isn't like the spices we have on our spice racks in the kitchen. You know, when a, a person back, back in this time was bringing spices to a burial, it was for generally two reasons. One was just as an act of homage. In the way that you would lay flowers down on a gravestone today, that's kind of what spices acted as, as a way of honoring the dead. But the second reason was very practical. It was to cover the stink. It was to cover the stench of a, a dead and decaying body. Uh, I have firsthand experience of this when I opened up my refrigerator a few weeks ago and it smelled like something was dying. Turns out something was dying. It was a carton of sour cream. Or I think that's what it was. You never know. And what do we do when we encounter the decay or the stench? We, ch- we, we try to remove it. If it's still there, you try to cover it up. For us, it was baking soda and Windex, and it still didn't do the trick. And this is, this is the type of thing that you would use spices like this for, to cover up the stench and the smell of something really bad, to cover up the mess of death. This isn't just Mary. This is what people have been asking for centuries in Jesus' day, there was a group of people, they were the Greeks, and they would have, they would have said that the reason that we deal with death, whether, whether it's your family, whether it's uh, you're, 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 you're getting to that point, or whether it's a loved one or a friend, whether it's your family dog that just died, how do we deal with things like this? The Greeks would have said, well, all you've got to do is find your rightful place in the universe, just fit in. And once you do, you'll experience harmony, and in that way, you'll, you'll transcend death. You'll move beyond death, and in that way, you can, you can beat it. After them, a group of people called the humanists came along, and they said, no, that doesn't work. You need to not just fit into the universe. You need to have all the right answers. And so if you get knowledge, if you know the correct answers to everything, you can better yourself, you can find deep meaning, and meaning will help you move beyond death. Postmoderns came along and they said, there's no meaning to life. You should just have fun. Just live life to the fullest. Do everything that you want to do. And if you have a full life, then death won't matter. You'll move beyond it. Of course, they're all wrong. A guy by the name of Ernest Becker, smarty pants in his own right, came along and he said, even the good things that we do, the small things that we do today, right now, are a type of a cover-up for our long-standing fear of death. We want to live forever. And so we live our lives in such a way that will hopefully give us meaning and significance and happiness and health. We want to know that our life counts, that it's not wasted. And so we fill our life with busyness. We're active. We have friends. We have stuff to do. We we get things done. We accomplish much, hoping that one or all of it will satisfy us. And in that way, things like death won't bother us. Like Mary, some of the disciples at the tomb with their spices simply covering over the mess that's actually there. I know a lot about messes. Uh, I have a two-year-old son by the name of Jude, And I'm pretty sure that God looked at me one day and he said, this guy needs to laugh more. And so he gave me Jude. And Jude likes to make messes. He is a, he's a, 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 an artwork in, a, in his own right. And it's pretty fun to sit at the dinner table and to eat spaghetti is one of our favorite meals. 
and uh, we'll be sitting there around the dinner table, and I have a daughter right there, Abby, she's four years old, and she'll be sitting, and she'll just be eating spaghetti, just dainty and polite without making any mess, and right next to her is Jude with shirt off, pulling, no utensils, grabbing spaghetti and marinara sauce and bringing it to his face. Misses his mouth, goes across his face like Braveheart going into battle, and then he doesn't just stop there, it just goes all over his chest. He's like, I am warrior, ah! And then from there, it goes into his hair. He's exfoliating his hair with marinara shampoo, just all over his face, right? Right? That's what he does. And then, this is actually the funny part. After all of that, a dollop of marinara sauce will fall on the ground or on the table and his OCD will kick in and he'll look at his parents and he'll be like, a mess, a mess, oh no, he's covered, just covered from head to toe in spaghetti particles. But there's a little dot right there on the table and he'll, he'll flip out. But then he'll immediately try to cover it up. He might put his hand on it, like look at mom. But then from there, he'll start to kind of try to clean it up and he'll... He's, he doesn't really know how to clean things, so he'll just kind of smear it around. The spot will get bigger, and he'll just start to smear it more, hoping it'll go away. By the end of this scenario, about a third of the table and all of Jude is covered in spaghetti sauce when he just throws up his hands and says, you know, I, we, we just laugh at the whole thing. It's amazing, but there's a part of that that's maybe a little more real uh, for me and just my own life and that I often have messes. And it's not just death and big things like that. Certainly it is, but the messes that, that come out of life. And I often try to cover them. Perhaps you do too. Smear them around a little bit and they never go away. Maybe that's how you feel this morning. Maybe you're coming to church because this is the day that you come to church hoping to cover the mess that is all over your life right now and you've spent your life trying to be happy, to be fulfilled, and yet if you were honest with yourself, you'd say something is still wrong. No matter how how much I shake it, no matter how many times I look or, or try to do the things that I'm doing, there's something still wrong, there's still a mess. And I love the words that the angel tells. These two angelic beings tell these women in the tomb. You say in verse five, why are you looking for the living among the dead. Why are you looking for life among dead things? In other words, you're in the tomb. You're in the wrong place, man. You're in the wrong place. See, the things that we deal with that make us uh, discouraged uh, and hopeless and lonely, the things that cause us to worry, our powerlessness, our sense of, 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 of losing control, our anger, our anxiety, all of those things are, are, are harsh and sad, but they're really just symptoms of death itself. You can't fix death by crowding it with temporary things like being busy, being successful, having fun, being wealthy, having stuff. No, death itself must be defeated. We must go to the root of the problem. That's why the words that come next from the mouths of these angels are the three most stunning words ever spoken to the human race. He has risen. Do you know what that means for you and me? It means that uh, it means that someone once and for all for the first time in history has beat death and the messes that come along with it. The author of Acts in uh, Acts chapter 2 tells us 
God raised Jesus from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on Jesus. He's bigger than death. If he's bigger than death, he's certainly bigger than all of your problems and all of your messes. He's bigger than the things that you can't control. Now some of you might, might think of that, and yeah, he died and he rose from the dead, that's a great parlor trick, but how does that really help me? You know, imagine if you were to share your soul, just bear your soul with me, and you're like, my, I'm going through this in my marriage, I'm going through this in my job, it's horrible, I don't know what to do, and I, I, I kind of put my hand on your shoulder and I said, there, there, I've got this all under control, I'm going to die for you, okay? <laughs> You'd be like, that's weird, thanks. <laughs> no, don't do that. <laughs> And I don't know how that fixes anything. How does your death, Jesus, fix mine or hers or his or even just basic problems in my life? You you know how it addresses your life? Because Jesus' death didn't come by itself. It came with resurrection. And when he rose from the dead, Jesus was making a statement about his power. Number one, he was saying, I have power over death. I have power over death itself and all of the things that come out of it. The curse, the messes, the drama, the heartache. Hebrews chapter two tells us that we have flesh and blood, we're people. And just like God, uh, God, Jesus Christ, came in the flesh to become human, he was able by his death to break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and to free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Jesus is bigger than death. He's certainly bigger than everything else. He's all powerful. You might say, yeah, but if he defeated death, why do we still die? Why do we still suffer? Why do we still deal with just basic things in life that that grieve us? Maybe a little illustration will help. Um, I was, during first set of worship, I was in the foyer hanging out with my daughter, Abby, and she was telling, we were talking about this uh, time that she came up to me in the backyard and uh, said, said the thing that no dad really wants to hear. She said, look, dad, I have a B. And I was hoping she meant like a spelling B or the letter B. And I turned around, and it's a honeybee, and she's got one pinched between her fingers, and she's got a big old smile on her face, and my heart just leaps into my throat, and I'm trying not to like react, and oh, that's so great. And then, and then she says the words every dad wants to hear. It's dead, right? It's a dead honeybee. And, and, and she said right after that, and, and it, it can't sting me. It's dead. It can't sting me. And she had this little smile of innocence and boldness on her face, tosses the bee onto the ground, goes, goes to play. And I realized, oh, my gosh. You know, we still have the effects of death around us. There is a day that the word of God tells us Jesus will abolish death and suffering and the grave, sin, sadness, grief. That day is coming. Right now, we still feel it, but we don't have to fear it anymore. We don't have to live in its shadow. Paul, when he was writing one of the longest explanations of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians, uh, ends that chapter talking about the resurrection by bursting into song. You know what he said? Oh, death, where is your sting now? Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? I see you, but I don't have to be afraid of you anymore. You're dead. And in the grave, Jesus lays death to sleep. One day it'll be gone, but right now we don't have to live in a shadow. 
too. He doesn't just have power over death. He has power over life as well. He has power over life that is falling apart. He has power over life that has been bruised beyond recognition. He has power over life that has been discouraged, embarrassed, lonely, sad, disillusioned. He has power over life that feels empty and hopeless. He has power over life that seems to lack meaning. He has power over life that has been beat up, bedraggled, abused, afraid, and left for dead. He has power over life that is filled with shame and sorrow and tragedy. He even has power over life that is happy and content and feels like it's going well. He has power over life. And not just power for you to survive this life and breathe a few extra times, but he said in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, I came to bring you real life. I came to bring you abundant life. I came to bring you the life you were meant to live with God. You know, John, who, who penned that, quoting Jesus, had a, a disciple by the name of Polycarp. Awesome name. You should name your kid that. Polycarp mentored a young man by the name of Irenaeus. And Irenaeus once said something that I'll never forget. He said, the glory of God is a human being coming fully alive. That's why Jesus died and rose from the dead. He rose from the dead so that you wouldn't have to be ripped off by a counterfeit. He rose from the dead so that you could experience what Paul would say in Romans is newness of life that comes only from a deep relationship with the God who created it. This type of life doesn't come from Greek philosophers. It doesn't come from smarty pants. It doesn't come from pastors and ministers. It doesn't come from superheroes or religious professionals. It doesn't come from witches and wizards, Anna and Elsa, Lightning McQueen, fun weekends, thrill-seeking, money-making, or hobby-chasing. It doesn't come from anybody. It doesn't come from you. It doesn't come from trusting in our life. It comes only from looking at Christ. I know there's some of you, maybe, in the room You're hearing this and you're like, yeah, whatever. I listen to Bill Maher and I read Newsweek and I read the Da Vinci Code and I follow the History Channel and I know all about Easter and it's a myth. And I'll grant you that around Easter and Christmas, there are a lot of myths and they are, that's what they are. Stories like Osiris and Dionysus and Adonis and Attis and Mithras, all the cartoons and Disney characters and Pixar films that come out, they're myths. But there's a difference between a myth and an historical event. There was a a guy, an old British guy, who came to the Lord struggling with this, by struggling with this very, uh, this concept. His name was C.S. Lewis. He was a skeptic, but he was a particular kind of skeptic. He was an expert in literature. He loved reading books. He loved literature, and as an expert in literature, his favorite type of book reading were myths and fairy tales. You know why? What he wrote uh, in the years to come was uh, more than uh, sports writing, more than news, more than dry journalism, a myth and a fairy tale, the things that we see in Disney films and in stories and in books and uh, uh, in in books that that we read as children, the reason that he loved it so much was that it had the ability to attach itself to his heart and to pull him into a different world that was too good to be true. And he said, I love the feeling that reading a fairy tale has on me. 
But you know where his struggle came in? He, he would write a, a letter to one of his friends named Arthur on October 18, 1931, writing about a struggle, and this was it. He said, I love myths because they're too good to be true, and it affects me, but I know they're, they're too good to be true. But then I started reading. He started reading the Gospels of Jesus, stories about Jesus, and he encountered the same feeling that he got when he read fairy tales that there was something happening that was bringing him out of his life into a world that seemed too good to be true. But what he writes to his friend Arthur was, as, I, as an expert in literature, I began reading these gospels and recognized these aren't myths at all. These are written like historical narratives. In other words, I began to face this reality that the story that was too good to be true is actually true. C.S. Lewis would give his life to the Lord because of what he would later call a true myth, a story that actually happened. And you know, there might be some of you in this building who are skeptical of the story, and I could bore you for hours about the reliability of the Bible and how the New Testament books are some of the most well-attested documents we have in ancient history. I could talk endlessly and bore you for hours about how the New Testament is an accurate and reliable source of history, even from a secular viewpoint. I could talk about how the eyewitness testimony surrounding the resurrection of Jesus is worthy of standing up in a court of law and that the evidence supporting the resurrection is so abundant that, the, that one scholar, N.T. Wright, filled nearly 800 pages, a phone book size, documenting the whole event. I could spend hours telling you about that because I used to spend hours in college searching for those reasons myself. But I'm not gonna. Because I know that while scientific evidence might help you understand, it'll never change your heart. The New Yorker a few months ago wrote this article saying uh, this about this research they picked up that has been going on all the way since 1975 for decades that has been repeated and perfected up until this point that basically states after decades of research we have discovered and the, the, art, the name of the article was called Why Facts Don't Change People's Mind and 30 years of research and the uh, sociological research has lended this evidence that people don't disbelieve stories merely because of a lack of evidence, but because they have a deep emotional attachment to something else. I get that. Because every day it seems like I'm, I'm, I'm confronted by something Jesus says that I don't want to believe. And it's not for a lack of evidence, but because of the seriousness of his claims on me if the evidence is true. Because Jesus claimed to be God. Jesus claimed to be Lord. Jesus claimed in the Sermon on the Mount to know better than anyone on the face of the planet how a life well spent looks like. Jesus claimed to be the smartest. He claimed to have all of the answers about God and about life as we know it. And he doesn't just make these claims. He also extends an invitation to anybody that listens to surrender everything and to follow him. If he rose from the dead... Claims like that can't just be ignored. 
I mean, you might hear that, and you might even believe the evidence, but say, I just don't want to surrender my life to Jesus. I, I kind of like my life right now. I'm not suffering that much. I have some money. Things are happy. People like me. I'm popular. It's great. Why would I want to surrender everything to follow this guy? Ended up getting himself killed. The truth is, he won't. Until and unless you see that you are not as in control of your life as you originally thought. That most of us are truly just smearing marinara sauce around in circles, thinking that we're controlling our mess. When I think of out of control messes, I think of the Apostle Peter. The one guy who wanted so badly to be someone and something. He tried hard. Now, if you were on the receiving end of the Apostle Peter's resume, and he was like, here's my resume, I worked for Jesus for three years, here's what it would say. He rebuked Jesus. He lacked faith in Jesus. He spoke when he should have shut up. He shut up when he should have spoken. He misunderstood Jesus' entire mission. He jockeyed for position. He refused to serve. He was too relaxed when Jesus needed him most. He was too aggressive when Jesus needed him to calm down. He ran away when Jesus was dying. He denied Jesus three times on his way out. And finally, after all was said and done, he went back to his old job where he was left off fishing, broken, embarrassed, humiliated, confused, self-deceived, and a failure. You know what that reminds me of? How I sometimes feel on a Monday morning. (laughs) But thank God Easter isn't about how I feel on a Monday morning. Nor is it about how Peter felt or how you're going to feel on Monday morning. Easter is about what Jesus Christ has done for people who feel like failures. And after, yeah. And Jesus has this knack of getting the attention of people who feel like failures. And after he beats death and lays death in his own grave, it says in verse 12, sure enough, Peter got up and ran to the tomb. He ran, he looked at the linens on the ground, and he wondered. One translation tells us that he marveled. He was just looking around like, what? And depending on who it was, there's all kinds of different reactions to Jesus. Mary and the other disciples in Mark 16 were afraid. Luke chapter 24 in this text, some disciples were skeptical. Others freaked out and tried to cover it up just like we always cover up our messes. But no matter who it was at this time, nobody could be indifferent to Jesus. It's hard to be indifferent to Jesus when you're looking at him in the face and he's supposed to be dead. It's hard to be indifferent to Jesus when you're taking him at face value. And you know what? You can take him at face value this morning too because the same invitation that he has extended to people for thousands of years, he continues to extend to you today. He said in the Gospel of John, I am the resurrection and the life. I love that. I didn't just rise. I didn't just pull off a resurrection. I am resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life, and whoever believes in me, even if he dies in this life, he will live eternally, and everyone who lives eternally and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? He isn't just saying this to Peter, he's saying this to everybody in this room. Do you hear him saying this to you? Do you believe in me? 
In another part of the same book, he defines what eternal life is. Eternal life, we think of eternal life as just living forever, millions of years in perpetual obscurity and confusion. You know, some of you are like, I don't like my life now. Why would I want to live for millions of years in this? You know, eternal life isn't so much qual- a quantity of life so much as it is the quality of life. And don't take my word for it. Jesus himself tells us what eternal life is in John 17, 3, when he says, this is eternal life, that you may know my Father and his Son, whom the Father has sent. Do you hear that? Believing in Jesus, then, isn't just having some right answers and information that you can get right on a, on a quiz. It means an interactive, close, personal relationship with the God of the universe. That's why he rose. That's why he died and that's why he rose. And that is available for, all, for thousands of years. This Jesus, this living Christ, has been pulling people out of messes and out of the fear of death and messes that they created for themselves but can't clean up for themselves and inviting them into a life with him. And he's inviting people still today. He's inviting you today. I'm going to ask the worship team to come out as we transition into to songs. But as we do, I want you to think about this invitation. Because maybe some of you are like, yeah, I want that invitation. What, what does it look like? How do I know that he's inviting me? Well, I'm pretty sure he's inviting all of you. Jesus came. He came for you. One of the ways that you know that he's working on you, I love this story uh, that comes out of Luke 24. It's after Jesus rises from the dead and people are, they've heard about it but they haven't seen him yet and they're walking on their way uh, to this town called Emmaus on the Emmaus Road and they're just talking with each other but Jesus is actually there with him incognito. He's just like, hey, what's been going on? You know, just walking, having a Bible study with him. They don't recognize him. They don't recognize him. It says in verse 16. That might be where some of you have been your whole lives. You might know right things about Jesus. You might know a few scripture verses. You might come to church every now and then. But if the truth were to be told in your own heart between you and God, you'd be like, I don't, I don't know you the way that I see described here. Like a person knows their friend. And it says, even of the disciples who walked with him, they, they didn't recognize him. And yet, as they're walking, it says in verse 29 through 31, he was at the table with them. They're just eating like buddies. And he breaks the bread, which reminds them of his body, and he blesses it and breaks it and gives it to them. And it says their eyes were open. Not their physical eyes. They see him already. Something inside. They recognize him for real. And they, they recognize him. Their eyes are opened. And he vanishes from their sight. And they say to each other, I love this line, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us? And he's not speaking about like a physical burning sensation or like heartburn. He's, he's speaking about our, something inside. The excitement that this is real, that he is real and he's pursuing me. The same thing that C.S. Lewis would describe when the, the, the feeling that a, a story that's too good to be true is actually true, that feeling inside you that takes over. That's what happened to them. Perhaps that's what's happening to you. And if that's what's happening to you, I think you should take that at face value, that that is no one else but Jesus Christ trying to get your attention. Does he have it? 
And if he has your attention, you don't have to make this more complicated than it needs to be. He simply, because he says this to his disciples, as he says it to us today, he issues you an invitation for the rest of your life to just follow him. Well, to do what? How do I do this? How do I get good at it? Is it complicated? Forget all of that stuff. Just follow him. Talk to him. Walk with him. Learn about him. Share your heartache. Share your feelings. Share uh, all of the things that are happening with you. Invite him into your mess and start a journey that you've maybe never been on up until this point. Jesus loves you and he came to give you a different way of life. And if that's something that you want, whether you're two years old, four years old, or 97 and a half, God's after you. You are deeply and profoundly loved. Psalm 139 tells us that God is so acquainted with your ways that he has your hairs numbered. He even knows what your thought life is. For those of you that think you're by yourself, hiding in the closet, struggling with whatever it is that you're going through alone and ashamed, you're not alone. He's in the closet with you, simply waiting for you to turn around and to say, I want to go with you. You might be afraid, you might be confused, you might not even know what it means to be a Christian, and that's okay. You don't need to. All you need is that desire that I see in Jesus a story that's too good to be true, but is. And I see in Jesus a man who has it all together because he's God. And I don't know what else to do, but I know enough about him. I want to follow him for the rest of my life. If that's you, you're already on the right track. Keep going. And let the Christ who is alive and seated at the right hand of the Father with the people in your life that also know him, walk with you as you do it. Some of you might be four years old, five years old, six years old, ten years old. You're like, I don't know what to do about this either. Have you ever just tried to talk to God? I'll bet some of you young ones in here, I'll bet God's been talking to you for a long time. I'll bet you hear his voice on a regular basis, and maybe you don't even know that it's God speaking to you. You know what you can do? You can just just talk back to him. Listen to him. Hear what he says. Share what he says with somebody that you trust. Everyone in this building has an opportunity to interact with an all-powerful, loving God. That is what is available to you in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is free of charge, and it is waiting for you to grab and pick up. That's the good news. And that is what's been changing millions of people's lives for thousands of years. Still available, fresh for you to take today. But the response is yours. As we sing today and we begin to proclaim the risen Lord, you can just begin to think about some of these things and allow the Lord to speak to you, to minister to you. We have some area here on the carpets for some of you that like to just be by yourself. You can kneel down and worship the Lord. There's the uh, the bread and the cup on both sides. Also upstairs where you guys are in the mezzanine, you can take the elements and remind yourself of the cross and the resurrection. There's prayer teams over uh, to the right and to the left. You'll see them with lanyards. They can pray for you. If there's any way we could pray for you, we want to serve you in that way. But if you need nothing else but a touch from God, that's available to you, and that's not from me. He's here, and he's waiting for your response. Let's respond together. Heavenly Father, we pray right now that you would have your way, that 
your spirit would open our eyes this morning that we might recognize you. And may our hearts come alive from one encounter with the risen Son of God. We pray these things in the name of Jesus.